Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. There are a ton of programming books out there, but there are only a few that have made a huge and lasting impression on developers across the board. And one of those is The Pragmatic Programmer from Journeyman to Master by Andrew Hunt and Dave Thomas which has helped an uncountable number of developers refine their career and practices. If your goal for your career is to become more than just a person who slings code for a living, this book will help you become a truly excellent developer. We've brought both Andy and Dave on to talk to us about writing the book and the upcoming 20th anniversary edition. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Man, I've uh, I've been like regression testing a massive amount of code and finding all the little mistakes that I made over a period of weeks and then having to correct them. Um, it's mildly humbling, I have to admit. So uh, other than that, man, that's that's just about it. So, um, Andrew, sorry, who? <laughs> it was in there as Andrew. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I'm trying to think whoever called me Andrew last. I think that that might have been my mother-in-law. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, and, and Andy will do fine. That's uh, that's fine. Uh, what have I been fighting all week? My goodness, I haven't been. Uh, I've been recovering. I think more than fighting, as uh, Dave and I have, have really just been putting the finishing touches on the 20th anniversary update uh, to the Pragmatic Programmer book, uh, and, so, and to mildly correct something you just said it is out already uh the uh, oh. the beta book came out on may 8th and you can go to pragprog.com and buy the ebook right now and it's it's content complete it's what the final book will be um so you can buy the ebook now and then this fall sort of late september ish uh it'll be out in hardcover at Amazon, what's left of your local bookstores, uh, any, anywhere, you, anywhere you buy fine uh, books printed on dead trees. That is shameless. Totally, absolutely shameless. Why, thank you. Why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. So, Dave, how about you? All right. Well, I've been fighting some cool stuff because um, having finished a book, I'm now in the middle of preparing for a um, course that I'm giving at um, SMU this fall, and uh, it's on programming languages. And I've decided that the best way to learn programming languages is to use them and to, um, you know, basically try and trace why they are the way they are. So um, I've been starting at the very beginning, and this week I have been fighting Algol 60 and PDP 11 Assembler and Pascal. Although actually not fighting the Pascal, I love Pascal. Um, but um, Algol 60 is pretty ugly for something that's supposed to be fairly seminal. I can yeah. see that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I occasionally get to do a little bit of Delphi with work. So, yeah, Pascal is nice. Um, the others are... That's well, I, actually, you know, I, I kind of like dissed PDP-11 Assembler. I actually, I really love PDP-11 Assembler. I spent probably, I don't know, five years making my living writing PDP-11 Assembler. And uh, we did some absolutely amazing things with it. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful architecture. Um, and it's also the basis of quite a lot of the ideas in higher-level programming languages. So there's a, a rumor that C got its auto-increment and auto-decrement from the addressing modes on the PDP-11. Um, but just in general, it's actually, it's actually a, a pleasure to use. And what a fun thing to do that level of sort of, you know, technological archaeology. Right, you know, but kind you know, of what? dig in, find out where did this stuff come from? Because too much of this, well, we just sort of accept that. Oh, of course, this is the way it is, and this is how it's always been, and this is how it works. But I think it's really instructive to dig in and trace the history of these things and find out how did it get this way? How did how did we come up with this? Where did this come from? And the amazing thing is that most of these languages, um, if you search, you can actually run them 
in your browser. So there's PDP 11. I mean, I've actually got an entire PDP 11, um, 11.70 emulator written in JavaScript that actually runs in my browser. And the scary thing is that running in JavaScript in my browser, it is faster than the original hardware was. Well, we can, we can test some later models. I've got a Z80 sitting up in my attic somewhere, so we can pull <laughs> that out. I'm pretty sure I've still got a 6502 kicking up there. Um, power supply might be a little hinky, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Um, yeah, I, that just sounds fascinating. Um, yes, it does. And while, I mean, while we're, while we're doing the history stuff, I'll tell you what, I, um, <clears throat> I've also been reading, rereading a whole bunch of um, original papers, and there's a Dijkstra monologue called something like Notes on Structured Programming, which was 1970-ish. And if you read it, I mean, the, the terminology is a bit funky. But if you actually read it, it actually predicts and, in a way, demands almost every single good practice that we've been using or we should be using um, today. It's, it's really quite, quite something. There's definite gold to be mined in those old papers. Um, I think it might come as a shock to people that, you know, computer scientists and programmers in the 1960s, the 1970s actually knew what they were doing. And yes, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what the score was. You know, you go back and look at uh, Fred Brooks' Mythical Man Month, it is still spot on. It is, mm -hmm. it is, there's, you know, other than some outdated technology, it's the same. We have the same issues. If you go back and read uh, uh, Dijkstra's uh, lecture on the very humble programmer, on, on the need to be a very humble programmer and not let your ego get ahead of you, not let you, uh, you know, work right to the edge of your ability because if you do that, right, then you've got no bandwidth to fix any bugs or any problems that come up. So this, this whole concept of kind of reining it back a little bit, um, you know, that was, what, 1970, 72, something like that? And that's still a problem last week, right? Yeah, problem this week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's only Monday, so. Uh, but uh, guys, so on, on that, uh, personally, I have been extremely busy lately. Um, it's just been a crazy weekend week been ramping up for for code land up in new york i used to be a week from today i'll be speaking up there finishing the slides which actually means finishing the paintings that i'm going to be using for slides because since it's my personal story uh i'm using mostly my friend's paintings but like a couple of my own and working on the story and uh then we're starting a new project at work so uh building up the scaffolding for uh a larger .NET Core app, which is kind of cool because I've only done smaller stuff with that. And then in, uh, in personal development news, I got a new capo for my guitar. Uh, actually, I say it's new. It's actually the first capo because it's the first time I've needed one. So uh, learning with that. Uh, and uh, on the note of personal development, let's go ahead and get into our business book for the month in book club. So going further into Power Talk, using language to build authority and influence, chapter three looks at our knowledge of our own linguistic patterns. In it, Dr. McGinty describes four steps for linguistic cross-training. They are looking in or sort of an introspective view of how we sound, looking out, which is inspecting the speech and buzzwords uh, that your group uses. Um, it may be your industry, maybe just within your office. And it's it, sort of those industry-specific things. So we do it in development a lot too. And people don't know what we're talking about when we say certain things. Um, the next is trying in, which is sort of testing out new behaviors in our own personal speech pattern. So trying things a little bit differently, going back to the, the previous two chapters, you know, if you're more of an edge speaker, trying to get a little bit more assertive with that language from the center or vice versa. And then finally, trying out, which is testing out these new speech patterns in a public setting, you know, in a, a larger group. 
Now, for each one of these, she gives some guidelines and some questions to ask yourself in the process. Now, chapter four takes the types of languages from chapters one and two, you know, language from the center and language from the edge, and shows how using these steps in chapter three can help us to start applying the correct type of language to various scenarios. And I've got a link to this in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we had a comment on Code for the Ages from uh, Johan Weigert. I hope I'm getting that right. Saying, thanks for the excellent list of events that will impact the life cycle of our applications. One thing that I would add to the two to five years list is larger changes to the business domain, tying this back to episode 132 on domain-driven design. In my experience from working as a developer within the ERP and CRM space, I've often seen such major changes in the business processes and the related domain in a two to five year time frame that large parts of the solution have been rendered obsolete. Thanks for a great show and for providing such detailed show notes. Yeah, <laughs> that's um, yeah. It, within the two to five year time frame, that is definitely true. Um, it kind of depends, I guess, on the industry. This is part of the reason I didn't do that um, because there's some of them like stuff just never changes. And then there's others that, you know, if it makes it two years, it's a surprise. So, Johan, thank you for that insight. That's that's really good. Send us an email to waterbottle at complete developer because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. You can check us out each week where we do a live show and talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some of your questions or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. In October of 1999, the Pragmatic Programmer was released. It changed an industry by outlining a philosophy of active participation in the creation and maintenance of software. As programming became increasingly complex and specialized, the lessons in this book helped software developers to reason more effectively about why certain approaches were ineffective or counterproductive over the long term. Both of us have read the book multiple times, both as requirements for work and with the goal of learning more from it from subsequent readings. Each time we read it, we learn more that we can apply in our jobs. Today we have Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas on the show. That's right. We have the actual authors of a book that created an outsized influence on both of our careers and those of many of our mentors on the show. This is going to be an awesome episode, so let's get rolling. So if you guys uh, remember a few months ago when we started up uh, Book Club, this was the very first book that we had in Book Club. And uh, Dave, Andy, something that we like to ask all of our guests... um, Will and I are big fans of origin stories, so we we like to ask, what first got you interested in programming? Oh, okay. We'll try and do the short version of this because I think this uh, we could we could be here for a couple hours uh, between the two <laughs> of us just just on that one question. Um, I first got interested, I think. Uh, I was cruising by an old uh, Radio Shack back when they had such things, and there was a book on these really cool things called microprocessors and this you know wild new world of large scale integration and chips and wow this looked like something sort of fun and so I got a, a sixty five hundred two based uh, computer and played around with some assembly and thought this is this I was hooked. Right, it was just like love at first sight. You know, it's one of those things where you just read a little bit about it, get a little something to play with, and it's like I'm in. I, I I'm in. Um, and I've been uh, you know playing with technology and, and largely getting paid to play with technology, uh, sort of ever since. So I'm kind of like the same but different. Um, so I went to school um, actually in the states, but also in England. And in England, everybody takes um, a like a national set of exams at ages fifteen. And then potentially also at ages 18, and they're kind of like university entrance things. And um, the way it works is the schedule for that, for me, uh, I ended early. And so they were left with a whole a bunch of students who had finished. Um, typically, these were the science-based exams, um, and we had nothing to do. They weren't allowed to let us just stay at home. So they sent us across the road to the local technical college, 
and uh, made us basically beta test uh, a new course they were giving on computer programming. And so this is the kind of, I mean, I'd played around with, with electronics and um, with, there were actually, um, before the 6502, there were 4,004s, um, and I was playing around with those, but nothing much. And then went across to here, and we were programming in BASIC on an old teletype with a paper tape punch and paper tape reader. And just like Andy, I fell in love. It was kind of like I changed my major. I was going to go do math, and uh, I changed. So I applied then to do computer science, which is a pretty new course at the time. Um, and pretty much I have programmed every day of my life since then. So, so fun, fun uh, alternate question there that just made me think of it. What was your first hardware project? Because I, I think... I might be wrong, but I think the very first thing I ever soldered together was a like uh, like an eight note transistor organ, uh, you know, with voltages dividers on a bunch of little uh, micro uh, switches, so you could get the tones and boop 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 sort of thing on a you know a little perf board with uh, uh, with solder connections. I think that was probably the first hardware project I ever did. Oh yeah, so I I was um, I was doing soldering from like age. 11 or 12 probably i got into yeah, i don't know how yep and um i was like there were there were magazines back then uh in the uk at least where they would publish like projects and stuff so i would build you know stuff up that the kind of the first thing i remember doing kind of like for myself there was a local television shop and this is back when televisions had those big tubes in them and stuff and they would uh give away televisions that you know people had brought in that didn't work and I would go and take one of these and put it into my little wheelie cart thing and drag it back up the hill for the components. And it occurred to me one day that, hey, you know, I really need an oscilloscope. And being like 13 and not really thinking too much about mortality, um, I sat and tried to wire up the, uh, the vertical deflection coils so that I could make the little beam go up and down on my television set. And I got quite a few quite nice shocks off that but i did actually manage to get a sine wave up on the screen so that was uh that's probably my first actual you know creative project do not try this at home (laughs) (laughs) Uh, those were the days yeah radio electronics was the uh one of the magazines at least here in the u.s i remember i remember reading that uh back in the day there were a couple others but but i I do and it was um steve circuit seller Oh yeah, yeah, Steve Siarsica, uh, because he was something like that. Yeah, 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 circuit seller. That well, that was yeah, that was the the bee's knees, as they used to say, right? That was, <laughs> great. That was great stuff. That was great stuff. And I mean, it's so funny because I mean, back then and even before that, I mean, like as, as a little kid, I just dreamed of the kind of home automation and automated voice response and voice recognition systems that we have today. And, you know, if, if you had told me that, yes, we'd have all this great tech, but now you're afraid to use it, that I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Like, what, what do you mean? Um, so it's kind of interesting, interesting to see that, yes, we've gotten, you know, Alexa and Siri and whatnot, but we don't have an Alexa in the house. I do. <laughs> that you know about. That you know about. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Have it's... you ever? <laughs> Sorry. Carry on. Uh, I was just say I, it. It is funny. I was um, at church. Uh, this was a couple of months ago when I first started working in the AV booth uh, at this new church I'm at, and we we're talking about training on the um, the soundboard. Um, and the very next day, I had ads on my Facebook account for uh, learning to do sound on a church soundboard. I'm like, what an amazing coincidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it, it's amazing because I haven't said anything anywhere else about this. And, you know, just happened to have my phone in my hand when I was talking. <laughs> yeah. Ah, what are the odds? Yeah, I just don't, I don't have an Alexa or anything like that because I'm cheap. Um, it's, I don't even really worry about surveillance. I just, like, I don't throw money at things. So I don't, <laughs> I'm totally safe. I'm not worth, I'm not worthwhile as a uh, consumer. Getting on into the the questions, especially about the book, um, the pragmatic programmer lays out a philosophical approach to improving your development career. Uh, if you guys had to, I guess, oversimplify your philosophy, what would you say? Like, uh, I guess, elevator pitch is what uh, what we're going for with this. I think. 
Well, an elevator pitch implies you're selling something. <laughs> and the, 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 the kind of approach we we're adopting is anything but sellable, saleable. Um, because I think fundamentally, the, the, in one sentence, I, I would say something like, be mindful and have fun. Um, and that's not really something you can package, which is probably good. What would you say, Andy? Close to that. Um, I mean, I like to have fun too, but if, if we're trying to keep it short, I'd stick to something like, um, oh, you know, can always be learning, always be learning something, always be trying and see how it works. You know, we, we're big on uh, feedback in a lot of different ways. You know, if, if you go through the book, there's, there's a lot of, there's what, I think we ended up with a hundred tips in the, uh, in the new 20th anniversary edition, uh, nine chapters, 53 topics, that sort of thing. But there's only a handful of themes that sort of weave through the whole thing. Um, taking small steps, trying things, getting feedback, and always doing it, as, as Dave said, trying to be mindful, trying to say, okay, that failed, that blew up. Yeah, I guess you can't do it that way. Okay, I've, I've learned something that, that's interesting. Let me try this, this other way and see what happens. Um, well, you know, one of the, the things that sort of bugs me, one of my pet peeves is because we're always so, because we feel this time pressure, all the time. We've got to get code out there. We've got to get this project done. We've got to get this, this, this stuff. Some problem comes up, uh, some challenge comes up and it's like, what's the first thing that flies into your head? Hey, that's what we're going to do. There's our architecture. There's our design. There, there, there's the code I'm going to write. The first damn thing that flew into my head, boom, that's it. And okay, I mean, that's a nice start, but really you should do, you shouldn't do anything until you have at least three solid ideas. So, well, I could do this, or I could do this other thing, or I could try it this other way. If you had three very different ideas, now you can actually spend some time being thoughtful, being mindful, as Dave says. Think about it. And it's like, hmm, okay, so if I did that, let me take that to the next step. If I did it that way, what would happen next? And what would happen after that? What are the trade-offs? What are the consequences? That's the kind of deeper level thinking that you really sort of need to get into the habit of because it's, it's easy enough to say, Hey, look, the code works on this one happy path. And it was the first idea that came to my head. Great. But you know, there's all the rest of this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fond of saying, you know, people get into these religious arguments over tech saying, well, this is the best language. Your language sucks. My language is better. This is, this is best, whatever. And that's, that's nonsense because Best for who? Best in what circumstances, right? There's no right or wrong in, in, in our tech. There's trade-offs and consequences. So that's the sort of thing you should be thinking of. Okay, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen after that? So I don't know if I, you said to boil that down to one sentence. I've been talking for about six minutes here. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I think I, I failed the, the brevity test. But, you know, it's, it's all along these lines of, trying a bunch of things, evaluating, you know, picking the best, trying it again, uh, going back to what we said at the very beginning about Dijkstra and being the, the humble programmer, you know, as soon as you think you know it all, you've lost, you're mm -hmm. dead, right? As soon, you know, even when you're an expert, then, you know, if you think you're an expert, you're dead because you've closed your mind off to opportunities and to, to possibilities. So you have to keep a kind of combination of you know, assured practice, but a beginner's mind to say, well, what if I didn't do that this time? What if I tried something new, something different? What if I went back to, to something we've done before? Yep. To expand that out beyond just the tech side of it, the, this idea that you don't know is, uh, I think probably, actually, I guess really, if I was going to give you a single sentence description of the advice, it would be realize you don't know. Um, because the, you don't know. You don't know technology. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the future. You don't know um, what's going to change. And you don't really know what your client or customer wants because they don't know what they want. So you're sitting in this world where on one side, everything is unknown. And on the other side, you have a machine that needs you to spell everything out. And your job is to be the kind of buffer between the two. And that's what makes it such an interesting and at times incredibly stressful job is that you're sitting there juggling all of these unknowns on one side and this really, really hard taskmaster on the other side that insists on 
you know, what do you mean by this? And so the book is full of strategies of how to deal with all of those unknowns, right? What, what techniques and what paths do you use to not just, just accept the fact that there are unknowns, but actually exploit the fact that there are unknowns. Um, there's a really cool book that the United States Marine Corps puts out. And because it's, a, it's, it's their kind of like internal manual on how to be a Marine, um, but because of the, uh, it's a government publication, so it's freely available online. And it's called Warfighting, all one word. And if you can get over the fact that every now and then they talk about killing people, it is actually an incredibly good book on how to manage in the face of unknowns. And in fact, the Marines actually, um, their philosophy is they have small teams that go out and they create chaos. They will deliberately do weird things. And they do it because they believe they are better at dealing with the unknown than the enemy. And so by creating chaos, they create a playing field where they think they have an advantage. And ignoring the fact that, okay, this is all to do with, you know, killing people in war and everything else, that's actually an interesting observation, that if you can deal with unknowns and if you can juggle unknowns, then you are in a stronger position to, to get stuff done than other people. And I think that's probably the basis of a lot of what we write in the book. Almost reminds me of, um, or I, actually, I guess it does remind me of kind of how uh, Netflix has their uh, chaos monkey that'll turn off services inside the production system so they can see that the system stays up and reacts effectively to it. It's like a high, um, high consequence chaos generator, basically. And it works really well for them for guaranteeing uptime because they know that, hey, this service may be down or you know, there is uncertainty and they have to program accordingly. Well, they, they, yeah. they get to practice, right? They get yeah. to practice. They get to, so rather than it, you know, this big outage happening or, or some, you know, random BGP failure takes half the net down, rather than that being a surprise the first time it happens, it's like, oh, okay, we've practiced for this. We've drilled for it. If you want to go back to the, the you know, the sort of the military uh, uh, approach to it. And boy, doesn't that make a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, and it's also come back to your idea of, of the first thing you think of, right? If you're Netflix and, you know, the entire East Coast goes down, the last thing you want is some, you know, DevOps person somewhere panicking, yeah? And mm-hmm. panic is what you do when you think you have, you've got to do something really important and you don't think you've got any time, so you, you can't think about it, so you just, like, do the first thing you think of. And there's actually, there's an interesting uh, analogy there with... Um, Flying. So I, I learned to fly um, about 20 years ago now. And um, during my instruction, we're in the cockpit and we're talking to, my, talking to my instructor and we were practicing emergency procedures. And he said, at one point, he did something and I reacted like kind of like, quote, instinctively and screwed up. So he said, no, 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 no. You got to remember to wind the clock. So I said, what on earth are you talking about? And he said, back in the 19, I guess, 1930s, there were accident after accident after accident when bad things happened in a plane, and then the pilot took some action that actually actively killed them. Um, you know, they did the wrong thing. They shut something down, or they, they turned the wrong way, or whatever it might be. And so they did a whole bunch of studies on this, and they discovered that the very first thing that a pilot chooses to do is typically wrong. It's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take into account all the facts. It's just basically the initial kind of knee-jerk reaction. And so back then, every plane had and still has a clock. But back then, it was mechanical. And so you had to wind up the spring. And so what they did is they started teaching pilots that when something goes wrong, right, an engine catches fire, a wing falls off, whatever it is, the very first thing you have to do is lean forward and wind up the clock. And that three or four seconds of just doing something. I mean, they actually made you do it. It wasn't just like a, a, a metaphor. You actually had to lean forward and wind the clock. And the idea was that that little gap, that little space gave you the opportunity for your conscious brain to catch up with your unconscious brain. And people made the right decisions more often when they did that. 
And that's an important point because, you know, when you're in a, a, a stressful emergency panic situation like that, you know, you don't think, you know, your, your brain is wired to say, all right, this is an emergency, shut off the areas we don't need, like the brain, and, you know, channel everything into, you know, emptying your stomach if need be, getting your legs ready to run so they turn to jelly, right? All these kind of, of you know, panic things, that's, that's your body saying, hey, let's gear up and do this. Um, getting back to the, to the military, they have this saying that, you know, something about in that kind of situation, you sink to the level of your training. Because, you know, whatever, whatever you drilled for, whatever you trained for, that's how you're going to respond. So if it's a novel situation that you've never uh, experienced, never trained for, you're just going to be deer in the headlight. You're, you're not going to know what to do. Yeah, but, that, okay, I was just to say, the thing that's got to be careful of there is that in many ways that we don't know what we're training for. We don't actually have a, a set of circumstances where, you know, if this happens, then we do that. And yeah, you're right. Netflix does do a lot of practicing, um, but at the same time, what they've really this real strength of what they've done, I think, is not so much the practice, is the fact that they've learned that they don't have to panic, mm-hmm. and because they don't have to panic, they can stop and they can think and they say, okay, yeah, I know, you know, we're losing a million dollars a second, okay, but let's just take ten seconds before we throw that switch to say, is this the right switch? Exactly, and, then, and that that really comes down to. You know, if you think of the sort of of models that we talk about for the industry, right? You know, everyone talks about doing an iteration as a sprint, you know, running in a straight line. Well, that's not it at all, is it? Because you're not trying to go as fast as possible. You need to stop and think, as as Dave says, right? So, okay, well, if it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? We're running for the long haul. No, that's still the wrong model. Because you're running linearly in a straight line. Here's the start. Here's the finish. We don't know what's coming up next. We don't know how to train for it or what will happen. So really, it's more of an obstacle course. Not a sprint, not a marathon. It's an obstacle course. And you could get the flaming pit. You could get the ropes. I mean, you don't know what's coming up. So it's the warrior dash. Yeah. Something. something. <laughs> well, you know, that kind of that kind of matches the thing too. You know, you were talking about you have this taskmaster on one side and then uncertainty on the other. But I mean you kind of almost have a taskmaster like that in a lot of organizations with your boss too, who expects a perfect estimate of how long stuff is gonna take. Well, and that's that's nonsense. I mean, to yeah. be honest, that's simply nonsense because what you're asking your people to do, if you are that manager, if you are that executive and you want a perfect estimate, you're asking your people to do fortune telling for you. And, you know, you might as well just say, well, sure, just tell me first, are you a Libra or Sagittarius? Because that, that totally plays into how the estimate is going to work out here. Um, I mean, seriously, it's, it's, it's that level. It's, it's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. It has never worked that way. So it's silly to try to force a model where we have to work that way. And this was, you know, again, one of the big uh, thrusts of the whole um, Agile movement that, you know, Dave and I were two of the, the, the authors of, of the manifesto. And we've been trying for close to 20 years now to get people to say, okay, don't think of it that way. Don't think of, I need to fortune tell out for the next year to give an estimate for something. How about you just deliver something today? Deliver it right now. Deliver it tomorrow. Deliver another thing the day after that. Just keep delivering small stuff. And then you can do some metrics. You can count up that if you want. But isn't it much better to actually hand somebody something that works instead of sitting around for three days inventing story points? You don't ship story points. What the hell? Yeah. This side of the entire story idea is that what you're doing is you're going out there and you're saying to your customer, hey, tell me what you want. I got this really cool idea I can. I can put it all down on a bit of the index cards and it will stick to the wall and it'll look like a police station and it'll be really good fun. And so you sit there and you get all these estimates, uh, not estimates, all these stories of your customers of, you know, I want this, I want that, I want the other. And you'll have to come back to them and you'll say, well, explain to me exactly what you mean when you say that. And you'll like annotate the cards and everything else. But the reality is they don't know what they want because nobody does. They have a feeling they have some problem that needs solving, but what programmers tend to do is to push them for details that just don't exist. And being, you know, manager types, they'll very happily make those things up just to get you out of the office. 
And so you'll end up with a set of requirements which look to you like they're definitive, but in reality are just smoke and mirrors. They're based on you know, a couple of wild guesses and then a whole bunch of interpolation. So unless you are prepared to iterate towards some kind of solution with your client, then you're never going to be able to you know, basically hit the target. I totally agree. And speaking of iteration, I, you know, I think, um, you know, I've been in the industry for a while. We won't, you know, it's a long enough, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, and I think a lot of the newer developers maybe don't really understand what the programming landscape was like in, you know, 99, 2000, around that time frame. Uh, if you would, could you uh, speak to that a little bit? Well, along, along what axis? Because it's, it, it, so this was sort of interesting, right? So we just came to revamp the book, which was written in that time frame, you know, 98, 98, 98, 99 uh, kind of time frame. And going back and reading it now, you know, there was the obvious technology references. You know, we talked about CORBA and RMI and, you know, fascinating new languages like Tom and stable languages like Eiffel and everyone's going, what? Right. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? That's like watching your old black and white Philco. A what? You know, other ancient tech. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was an awful lot of that, but the, the whole the tenor of development was very different. I mean, this was a world where you still had, right, AOL carpet bombing CDs to get you to dial up. You know, the, the internet, it cracked me up. Dave, Dave can attest to this. We were going, reading through the book, and every time we talked about the internet, right, it was all caps and sort of glowing as this, you know, new nifty thing where you could go and search for information. You didn't Google for information because there was no Google. We used Alta Vista. We used, yeah. uh, you know, some of the others. Uh, it was a very different world. You know, you didn't have you know, uh, continuous deployment in the cloud. You know, the idea that you could just do a check-in and that would fire off a build on some ephemeral machine somewhere. I mean, that would, awesome. I would have loved, I would have killed for that back then. That would have been awesome. <laughs> I mean, because people didn't actually have source control. I was going to say, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. It's like, they didn't check in. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that you, you, you know, we laugh about that, but yeah. we, when we would go out and give, um, give talks back around that time frame, even 2000, 2001, 2002, you could ask for a show of hands in the audience of who did not use version control and you'd get third of the audience you know, sitting in the back, laughing kind of nervously, like, oh, we've been, we've been called out. But yeah, they would, you know, they would perfectly be, they'd be perfectly happy developing software, all editing in some shared drive somewhere. And if two of you edit the same file at the same time, last one in wins. I remember those days. Ah! I, <laughs> I remember those days circa 2007, though, unfortunately. That oh, and I'm, still, I'm sure it's, it's still out there. I, I literally had someone uh, tell me once, I asked what version control system they used, and they said Microsoft Outlook. And I said, uh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I was talking about your version control system. They said, yeah, yeah, we, we use Outlook. We, we all mail the code to each other at the end of the day, so there's a copy on the server just in case. Yep. Or, or you do the thing with like the batch file that just makes a copy that's date stamped and puts <laughs> it in another directory, you know, and then you put that in your system path and you just, not that I've ever had to do that anywhere. Yeah. I, a friend of mine. It was a friend of mine. Yeah. I heard, yeah, I yeah. heard this guy, this guy. <laughs> but the other thing is that back, back then there was, um, so, I mean, if you look at it in terms of history, the, the sixties and seventies with this kind of like totally wild breakout period, where anything was possible. I mean, when you consider that in 1960, we were writing autocode and possibly Fortran. And by 1972 or four or something, we had small talk. I mean, that is a phenomenal achievement. And it just kind of kept going for a while. But then it got to the point where as software grew and more and more people were doing it, it became apparent that that kind of pace of innovation just wasn't going to keep up. And we were expecting way too much of the people that were writing code. And as a result, what happened was that projects started getting um, worse and worse and worse, basically. I mean, commercial software development, you know, basically was going one step forward, two steps back the whole way through the 80s and most of the 90s. Um, and projects were, I mean, people got totally cynical. Projects were always late. Some ridiculous percentage, like 50% got canceled. Um, 
you know, only, I don't know, 20, 30% got done anywhere close to the originally estimated time. And so people were desperate for anything that would help them. And whenever the situation is that people are desperate, then obviously there are other people who will sell them something. So there were all sorts of solutions to the, quote, software crisis, which were typically um, some kind of like overall um, set of procedures that you had to follow, diagrams you had to draw, and oh, by the way, a whole bunch of tools that you had to buy to create the diagrams and to, you know, um, check you as you went through the procedures. And there'll probably be some consultancy and training on that as well. And that was very much the landscape towards the end of the 90s, that we were looking at a situation where software projects were um, clearly out of control. And the accepted wisdom was the only way to get them back in control was to bring in kind of like, you know, grown-up practices and to to basically beat the developers into being more responsible. Um, and that's the environment in which we wrote that book. And we'd seen that happening, and we knew that that didn't work. Um, and so a lot of the book, it wasn't designed to be kind of like in your face, but it, a lot of the book actually turned out to be a bit that way, you know, towards these big um, universal solutions. Because the philosophy we had is there are no universal solutions. And it comes back down to individuals doing the right thing. And that's, and that's, still, that's still the case today. I mean, I mean, you're saying this like, well, this was the case in the 90s. That hasn't really changed. I mean, you still have people selling, you know, sort of snake oil methodology saying you have to draw these diagrams, you have to follow these procedures, you have to have a two-week iteration, you have to do a this and a that. Oh, and you have to pay us to get certified to do it, of course. Which right. Right. You know, showing up, you know, attendance to a course and, hey, bang, you're certified. Um, but they're falling into the exact same trap. And the trap back then was that as soon as you throw in all these rules and procedures and try to tie everything down and optimize it, you have engineered a very static approach. This is how you do it. And even with, you know, some of the, the methodology snake oil salesmen today, they're selling a very static approach. This is how you do it. What were we talking about earlier? It's not a static world. It's not a linear world. It's an obstacle course, right? So this kind of heavy-handed, uh, you know, do the, always follow this procedure, always do this, nonsense. It's not going to work. One size does not fit all, never has. And that's one of the lessons, you know, throughout the book is don't, tr don't succumb to that. Don't fall for that uh, sort of trap of thinking, well, I'll just do this. This worked last time. I'll just do this. Well, no, you don't step in the same river twice, right? right. You know, that was then. This is now. Now you got you to gotta pay attention. You have to be mindful, um, as we said back up at the very beginning. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting because that's something that's really easy to fall into. I don't think it, it matters what level you're at, but when I first got my first job, they sent me for uh, talking about Agile. Uh, I got trained as a Scrum master and certified Scrum developer and all this like expensive training they sent me through. And I had a very... that I had that mindset. And I actually think that's around the time that Will gave me your book. <laughs> And, and corrupted you, corrupted yeah. you right then and there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had that very, that very rigid, you know, we are doing scrum and this is what scrum is. And what you're talking about doing is not scrum. And I had some people in management that really liked that because that gave them like that, that one thing, that one bit of authority. And then other people who I really think the ones that had been developers before they got into management, were, were not as a big fans of that. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, management is always looking for a way of solving a problem by throwing, ideally, not too much money at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of sad when that happens. It really is. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you just hand them what they want and then they go away and then you do what you're <laughs> supposed to do. I mean, that's, that's the approach I've seen work. Oh, I, I had I had a friend who who actually did that to a T. This was up uh, in the Washington D.C. area, working for some DoD companies, and you had to have you know extensive ISO nine thousand style you know documentation that you did what you said you were going to do. And so what they did was they had their regular development team use an actual 
agile process, not the, the crap that's getting pitched today, but an actual, you know, rock and roll, lots of feedback, you know, short iterations, continuous delivery kind of agile world. And when they finished the projects, they had a <clears throat> documentation team uh, go back and um, author synthesize the uh the required paperwork to say yes this is exactly what we intended to do all along and everyone was happy <laughs> yep. yeah you know, it's it's i had a software company in england and some of the customers that we were going for uh required iso 9001 certification so we looked into that and the way you get iso 9001 certification at least back then was you pay a consultant and the consultant comes in with about two feet worth of manuals and you go through the manuals with the consultant. And if you're not in the fast food industry, then you can rip out pages, this and this. And, you know, if you're not delivering babies, you can rip out this page and this page. And eventually you end up with a one foot long document, which you then um, basically sign. And uh, the inspector comes along and make sure that you sign the document. And then you're ISO 9001 certified. And um, we actually, instead of doing that, we actually read the spec and we wrote our own documentation. And it was, I think, 70-something pages long. And most of that was all the kind of housekeeping around invoicing and that kind of stuff, which for some reason they're really big on. Um, and the inspector came in and said, where's your documentation? And we gave him like this like stapled together sheet of paper. And they said, no, no, where's your actual document? And I said, that's it. And they said, no, no, you got to have a lot more than that. So I said, well, read it, you know, and they read it and they went, oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. And we passed first time. But the, the thing there is that the bringing, bringing in these big processes doesn't have to be, I mean, the intent behind the process, um, particularly 9,000 is actually pretty good, but the, the implementation typically involves consultants. Um, if you throw that away and just go for it and just read what's required and actually understand why it's required, what's the spirit of it? then you do a lot better job. Everybody's happier. And it's also something you can live with. And again, I mean, it comes down to the, the idea that you can't just follow the recipe. You can't just follow, you know, software development is not a Play-Doh machine. You can't just throw people in one end, turn the crank and have software come out. It's not that simple. You need smart, talented developers. That's what it comes down to. And if you can't find them, then you got to figure out how to make them, right? Because, and we can all do that. We can all get smarter. We can all invest in ourselves. We can all learn more tomorrow than we knew today, hopefully. Um, but that's what it comes down to. Um, and even there was a, back about the time we wrote the book, uh, Capers Jones had this large three-inch tome uh, you know, first of all, I hate measuring documentation by lineal shelf feet. That, that's, a, <laughs> that's a bad sign. But he, he had this, this, this big th three-inch book that was uh, a survey of thousands of software uh, projects across many hundreds, hundreds of companies trying to determine what was a best practice, what worked for people, what didn't work for people. And there was some context to it. So it wasn't just the kind of nonsense of this is a best practice for everybody, just shut up and do it. It's like, well, if you're selling shrink wrap, do this. If you're you know, working in-house, that's a different context. Here's this. So we had all this uh, data you know, analyzed and sorted. But in the very preface of the book, before he even gets into the, the survey and the data and all the rest of it, he makes the observation that, you know, if you've got really smart, uh, talented developers, it doesn't matter what process you use or what techniques you use, you'll win. And if you've got a bunch of novices, a bunch of noobs who aren't up to the challenge, it doesn't matter what process you use, you're still going to be challenged. You're still going to have trouble getting it out the door. That's what it, that's what it, it's what it comes down to. And we would love to pretend it otherwise. We would, you know, management of, of any company, if I'm signing the checks, this, this counts me too. I would love to hire the cheapest, newbiest developers I could find, throw a process at them and be guaranteed of some result. But it doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. You've got to have the, you know, the smartest people that you can get. And, you know, if, if for whatever reason you're limited in what you can get, then make them smarter. Help them. No, I don't want to know. Careful, the word isn't smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm abbreviating here, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to the idea of being mindful. I think, but, mm -hmm. but there's, there's another side to that that I think we don't talk about enough, and that is 
it's very easy to be this kind of like stick it to the man kind of attitude where we say all of our problems are expo- you know um, imposed on us by management and people trying to sell us expensive tools and this kind of stuff. But the actual reality is the vast, vast majority of the problems we bring upon ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the problems that we bring upon ourselves are in many ways exactly the same problems in that we are, um, we tend to get religious about stuff, you know, and, or we find something that works and we cling to that because if it works, it must work, you know, forever. And we don't stop to think why these things work, you know, what the benefit is. So uh, my, my current, I hate P, is um, people that go on about testing. There's this thing now where testing has become more important than the actual programming. Um, yes. I've been to conference talks where people talk about metaprogramming Cucumber, which is like 16 levels removed from the actual code that you're actually writing. Um, and it's, it's ridiculous. You get people online saying things like, well, show me the test. If there's no tests, I'm not going to look at that code. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you test some of it? I mean, like this is kind of the same deal, right? Like it's, let's remove the human element from the scenario and then say that we actually accurately tested, or we actually came up with a good process. If you don't, you know, take into account the human element and the variability of that, the tests don't matter. The process doesn't matter. It's kind of all the same thing. Exactly. I mean, we, we fall for the same traps, right? I mean, we fall for the same sort of traps. It's like, I want, well, first of all, ooh, look, that's shiny. You know, I want the new shininess because that's fun. But yeah, we try to like abstract out the, the messy human component, but that's actually the very thing that you need to address, you need to deal with. Um, there was a, a great video. I wish I could find it. And I'm sure some listener will. There was a great com- uh, comedy video uh, of somebody who was explaining how testing really worked. And it was this fellow in a, like a flak jacket, bull- bulletproof vest, telling his friend to shoot him. And the friend who was going to shoot him had the label QA on him. And, and then the other guy with the flak jacket was the developer. And he's trying to convince this guy to shoot him. He's like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Great. So the guy you know, finally aims and shoots him in the kneecap yep. <laughs> and drops him. It's like, oh, you know, did not see that coming. Uh, you know, so yeah, you, that mess, that human variability, that's the point. That's actually the whole point right there. Yeah. And of course, the management probably shows up and tells him to run faster. You know, we, we make jokes about that. I mean, it's, it's from where we sit, we make jokes about management making unrealistic uh, expectations. We make jokes about users being um, silly or stupid or, you know, looking at the wrong end of the telescope or, or whatever. And in both cases, it's a failure, a failure to communicate. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the only way to understand what the user actually needs is to talk with them. It's a discussion. You have to work with them, talk with them, understand them. They can't just say, I need a button to do this. It's like, well, okay, why? What, what are you actually trying to accomplish? You know, it's, it's not a monologue. It's a discussion. And it's the same with management. I mean, management have their, their, their goals, their reward structures, the things that they're trying to get done. And there's things you can deliver. There's things you can't. And that needs to be a discussion. It's like, hey, you know, I know you asked for this, but if we did something slightly different, we could do it in a tenth of time and be a lot easier. And you only lose this particular feature. That, that's one of the examples out of the book that, that just popped into a neuron there somewhere. But that's the kind of discussion you need to have. It can't just be, yes, boss, you, know, you, gave, us, you gave us the, uh, the, the requirements and now we're just going to sit here and type. You know, that's not how it works. Agreed. Yeah. I, I have seen um, just in, in my short time where we spent weeks building out um, these reports and these processes for for a division and then they go well this is this is really good but can you just give it to me in an excel file can you just like shoot out a, a csv for me and i'm like really I, I i could do that in an afternoon what and it was because nobody asked what are you doing with this data exactly said what exactly. Do you need and assumed how to put it yep. together for him yep and then that's, that's a huge thing. I mean, I, one of my pet peeves, one of my fighting with is you get these sorts of systems where you can do everything that's required, but 
it, it's, it's almost like programming an assembly language. You have to, it's all these little steps in all these little different places. There are these different tasks, but there's no, no sense of workflow. There's yeah. no sense of how are you going to use this? Well, as soon as I get this, I need to go over here and do this with it and then do that with it. And, you know, oftentimes the system probably doesn't accommodate that. You know, here's this little section of functionality and here's this little slice of functionality. It's like, well, that's nice, but I have a, I have a workflow. I have a, a task that I'm trying to get through and I can do it, but it's, it's not easy. One yeah. of the things that, that, that is, um, kind of not done as much now as it used to be back in the old days is this thing called a work with where if you wanted to really find out what was required, you would go and actually do the job or at least sit beside someone doing the job, not the manager who gave you the spec, but the actual person who's going to use this software and you'd see what they did. And by doing that, you'd be able to work out not what was asked for, but what is required. And yeah, the, the, the higher levels would put some kind of perspective on it saying, yeah, this is going to change next year because of some regulation, or whatever, but you'd still be able to see, okay, looking at this, I can see like a whole bunch of ways in which we can make this better. Uh, I remember the first project Andy and I met on, um, we were doing a work with, um, with, um, Judy, uh, one of our experts. And this was on a, um, uh, a bit of software that switched um, debit card transaction. And she had a pile of scrap paper on her desk and she would pull up a screen and then write some numbers down and then go to the next screen and type those numbers back into another field. And we were like, why are you doing that? And she will, I need that number in this screen. So I said, well, why isn't the system putting it in there for you? Um, I don't know. You know, and those are the kind of things where, you know, you can really hone in on what somebody wants, but just trying to do the job. And, and that, was, that was that was twenty years ago, right? And I we still I run into that with banks, credit card companies. You know, a lot of the stuff that's online, even for consumers, it's like okay, there's there's a fairly obvious workflow here. You just sent me an email asking me to reconcile my monthly statement. You know what I'm going to do next? It's going to be this, that, and the other thing. And fifteen clicks later into their site to get down to the point to get to the bloody statement. And yeah, copying this number from here because I don't have this available. It's like no one thought about it or no one worked with or no one saw a user actually using it. Well, I actually know some guys that, um, you know, they brainstorm on software ideas by asking businesses, what do you copy and paste in Excel? That's a brilliant business strategy right there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, the other thing, too, is like if you actually sit with the users, it I think, you know, one thing that we don't think a lot about is how we motivate developers to actually help people. If you're sitting by them and you can actually see, hey, this will take this pain away from this person. Mm -hmm. That is a way better motivator than, well, you get a foosball table. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's putting people back into the equation, right? It, it's yeah, I think somewhere we say this, that, you know, programming is an act of co-creation, right? You're not sitting there building this world by yourself. You're building a world for someone. Right. And, you know, that, that's, you know, it comes down to that. I mean, we've, people have said, hey, you know, is Pride, Pride Prague's great for a technical book? It's really not a technical book. I mean, yes, there's technology in there. We talk about concurrency and, and you know, these, these sorts of issues, but it's really a book about people and about, T talking and working with people of, of which, you know, I'm one, right? You know, we've, we've got all the same, uh, uh, the same cognitive biases and the same, uh, we fall for the same traps. And, you know, I think that's why, you know, Dave and I were able to um, capture a lot of these, these ideas and explain them because we've fallen for them. We've, we've written bugs. We've written these exact bugs. We've done these exact things. Well, so, I mean, you have. Yeah, yeah well, you know, I, specialize. <laughs> I specialize in it. Yeah. And bugging, right? It's, you know, if you're debugging later, then when you're writing code, you're end bugging. Isn't that how it works, right? Yeah. 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 And, and coming back to this idea of motivating programmers, I have this theory. It's no, no proof to it whatsoever. But I have this theory that um, everybody gets satisfaction out of producing something about helping other people. And so people find that kind of um, release in many, many different ways. So some people are musicians or artists and they perform, or some people write, or some people do customer service and actually really enjoy doing it. Um, developers write code 
But really what developers do is they actually help other people get things done. And mm -hmm. being able to actually see that, I think, is the best motivation you can get. I mean, I don't know, back in the day when paper, was, paper books were still like a big thing, I don't know a single one of our authors that when their book got published, didn't get in the car and go down to a local bookstore and find their book on the shelves. Just because the feeling you get when you actually see the amount of all that work you put into it suddenly realized, you know, on a physical object, on a shelf in a bookstore, it's like, it's, you know, it's amazing. Same thing for software. I remember when I was uh, in England working on a project in the 80s, uh, it was a project for um, giving travel agents access to airline reservation systems. And I remember the first time I walked down a high street in England and I looked through a travel agent's window and I could see the terminal running my software at some random travel agent. And the feeling of that was just like, you know, well, I've actually made a difference. You know, my, my stuff is actually in the world. And I think that's something that we tend to miss, particularly in this big, you know, cloud world where, you know, you, you do a git commit and then it gets deployed off to some machine and some anonymous person somewhere else uses it. You don't really get to see the, the people actually using your stuff. And I think that's a really big loss. Yeah, it also probably biases us towards fixing our own problems with the code versus fixing the users because we don't see them. Like we're, you know, we're face to face with the rest of our team all day, but not with the users. And, you know, potentially as a result, that means that we, you know, try to fix things by abstraction, like over abstraction, because we're fixing it for the rest of our team rather than the users who actually have to use this stuff. Well, and, and so there's a question there. You say that, you know, you spend all day with the team and not with the user. Why not? You know, I mean, this, this is such an obvious solution to so many problems. You know, it's like, oh, you know, we don't communicate with our manager. Well, do you ever talk to them? Well, we don't communicate well with the user. Do you ever talk to them? I right. mean, hey, there's a real simple fix here, you know? Yeah, I've, I've worked at a couple of places where we had direct, regular interaction, and it was so much better. I mean, we could roll stuff out. The developers barely, you know, like, they didn't really need a whole lot of management. You know, they were, they knew the direction to go, whereas, you know, other places I've worked where they've isolated the developers, you know, you rework stuff like 500 times sometimes, it seems like, because, sure. you know, the communication. Well, and, you know, part of that, part of that, I have to think is, again, another trap you can fall into is in thinking, you know, people, uh, developers will introduce themselves as, I'm a Java programmer or I'm a PHP developer, or I'm a you know, JavaScript writer, or whatever. And no, you're not. You're a problem solver. Right. These are the tools you happen to use. So if you've got a, a corporate culture that says, all right, well, we're going to put the Java programmers over here, and the QA people over there, and the users aren't allowed in the building, you know, you, you've already lost, right? Because you're not a Java programmer. You're a problem solver. And to solve the problem, you need to wade in you need to you know be all over it you can't you can't have that that level of isolation is just incredibly counterproductive there's, there's a big there's a bigger side to that equation too and that is in a, a typical organization when it gets above a certain size the developers are probably some of the only people in that organization who actually have a finger in all of the pies mm. who actually understand all of the business at least at some level and so quite often if you can get an empowered team of developers, they are not just writing code. They're actually fixing the business processes behind the, the overall organization. They're making things more efficient, often without code. You know, they'll often be saying, do you realize that if you put, you know, that incoming shipment on that side of the warehouse, it would be closer to Fred for when he has to unpackage it, you know? And that kind of stuff just comes from having that intimate familiarity with everything that goes on. Yeah, and your billing rate is probably a lot lower too when you just say I'm a Java developer versus I solved a problem that costs this much money. I don't know because when you think about how people recruit nowadays, you know, they, they it's all done using this kind of like you know binary sieve. You know, I need someone that's got you know 107 years of Java experience or whatever it might be, and you know, unless you get through that initial hurdle, you're not going to get in the door to even talk about the job. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm just saying yeah. that's kind of the reality. Well, and 107 years is really just like a couple of JIT compilations with Java anyway, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, we don't talk about real time as opposed to it feels like, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my favorite is, you know, pick your, your favorite new JavaScript framework that came out two months ago and say, I need someone with five years experience in this. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, okay. Here's another interesting question, right? 
So you're, you're recruiting someone to write JavaScript, and you say, I need someone who's got, you know, maybe it's not even five years. Let's just say two years' experience with Vue.js. All right. And you sit there and you, you find these people. Well, what have you actually found? What you found is a group of people who are already obsolete and who are more likely than not going to keep you in obsolete technology because that's what they do. So I, I think whenever you recruit that way, you're, you're making a mistake. I would much rather recruit, when I, when I had my own company, I quite often repeat recruited people who weren't even programmers because becoming a programmer, if you have the right attitude, is way easier than getting the right attitude if you're already a programmer. Hey, Andy, I made perfect sense for once. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was quiet because I'm writing down the date and times. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can get that in UDT. So you <laughs> exactly. Oh. UDT. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's like the old, the old game about you know, hiring um, college graduates. It's like you know, anything you learned in college is going to be absolute, obsolete within a few years of being in the workplace. So what are you hiring for, right? You want to hire people who can learn and can learn fast mm -hmm. and can, and, you know, have that innate intellectual curiosity to go figure things out. You know, oh, this, this didn't work. Let me pull on that string. Let me find out why. Let me go read up on this other uh, bit of business. Or this is interesting. I had no idea this happened in the 1800s in the Pacific Rim Basin. Let me go read about that whatever it might be. But, you know, that, that's the ability that, that I really would want to look for uh, when hiring is that kind of tenacity of, of intellectual uh, pursuit that, hey, this is cool. I want to learn that. And this is cool. Let me learn that. Because that's what it takes. It's such a fast-moving, ever-changing landscape. You know, as soon as you know everything about something, you don't need to know it anymore because it's obsolete. So you got to keep yeah. going. Dave, Andy, we uh, we definitely want to thank you guys for uh, for coming on. And guys, the Pragmatic Programmer is one of a few books that both Will and I recommend to aspiring developers. Like anytime we're on another show or someone asks us for a recommendation, it's definitely in our list. It's heavily influenced both of us and greatly changed the way developers do their day-to-day -day work as well as changing their long-term strategy. Well, we've learned a lot from this book and we highly recommend it to you. This interview was just an example of the deep insights and uh, the, the great things that you can get out of the book. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes for you guys. That pretty much wraps it up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, you know, one thing this, this interview kind of pointed out was the value of taking the time to do stuff correctly if you want stuff to last. If you're doing engineering, art, science, literature, anything that, that you know, kind of moves the needle forward for humanity, it pays to spend the time to prepare appropriately. I mean, really, the only thing that you can do that lasts a long time, you know, you know really quickly is vandalism. And that tends to be what kind of happens when you rush art or science or anything that's really important. So just, you know, I, I really took a lot of that from, you know, this conversation and from their book before is like, actually take the time to get stuff right. And it'll help you out in the long run. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.